0: You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Greg Lavallee, and I'm the director of technology here at Slate. On this mini season of Working brought to you by Microsoft, we'll be talking to coders, people who write software every day to help you log into websites, give you access to public sets, or figure out where satellites are in space. For this episode of Working, I talked to Omar Shahada, who does graphics programming for a company that makes three-dimensional maps on the web. It was really interesting talking to Omar and learning how he views coding as a tool for self-expression. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Omar Shahata,
1: and I work as a graphics programmer at Cesium. Cool. And uh, what is what is Cesium? So Cesium is a company that. Um, so Cesium is a startup that works on um, 3D maps. So you can think of it a little bit as like um, Google Earth, but open source.
0: Got it. So the code that you write day to day is to uh, make those maps
1: available to people, or is it to do specific things with maps? So we don't create the maps ourselves as much as we create tools that enable others to sort of create these maps and put their data um, on display. So, for example, a lot of times people, uh, people will have their own 3D data that they get from drones. So think like construction companies or real estate or mining or things like that, they will, or agriculture is another big one. So they'll gather their own sort of 3D data scans and they need a way to sort of um, see it, analyze it, share it. And, and the, the tools that enable that sort of stuff is what we do. So a lot of it's like 3D three D mapping stuff? Exactly. So there's a lot of tools already for sort of having your 2D, traditional 2D maps, but the 3D mapping is really in its infancy, partially because the data sets that you get in 3D are often very large and... Um, difficult to work with, there's a lot of different proprietary formats that aren't always sort of interoperable, they don't work together very easily, so there's a lot of problems that make it hard to share uh, the data, and just the sheer size of it makes it hard to work with.
0: Have you always coded stuff for graphics, or have you done other sorts of programming?
1: I've always aspired to write graphics code, in fact this is my first sort of um, real full-time job working in graphics, which is kind of a dream job. Before that, I've I've done a little bit of everything from making websites to uh, web applications, and and before that, I got kind of got my start creating uh, video games, mostly two D video games, but that was kind of how I got interested in working in graphics. Is there
0: anything you think that's different about coding for three D or just graphics? That's that's like fundamentally different from coding for something else, like a a website or a, something like that.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, it's. One thing is, it's a lot more fun than just any of the other types of programming I've done. Everything obviously is a lot more visual. So, one thing that I always that I really appreciate about this kind of work is that anytime you make a, a mistake or have a bug, the result is often very visually interesting. Whether or not it looks good, but it's always something that's interesting to look at. It always produces some kind of visual result that you can always look at.
0: Do you have like an example of a recent one?
1: Yeah, there's all sorts of things. One, well, this is kind of a so I don't work in a lot of like character modeling, but this is one, um, I'm sort of glad I don't work in character modeling because any sort of bug you have when you're creating sort of a, a model's face, whether that's like a 2D character or like a 3D character can often result in something pretty, pretty scary, to be honest. And w- one example of this I have is I was working on a sort of a character system where I was giving him a way to sort of uh, have different emo- emotions, so have different facial expressions. And through a bug in my code, I accidentally had it put all of the expressions on top of each other at the same time. So this one character had like, you know, happy, sad, angry, crying all at the same time. And that looked very, very bizarre, but also because it was sort of trying to be like a little bit of a human character it's very uncanny. So a little bit nightmare inducing, but thankfully I don't do that most of the time. So that's, uh, that's something I can avoid most of the time.
2: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW, report were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.
0: That's funny. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you, how you came into coding? What was your path that led you to doing software development?
1: So how I got into programming is actually kind of an interesting story because I never, I was never seeking to learn programming as sort of an end to itself. Initially, all I really wanted to do was to tell stories. And, you know, I was writing these stories, and the only person who would read them was my English teacher, because she had to. And then I was like, okay, well, maybe I can tell my stories through, like, uh, cartoons to animations. Uh, and I would actually submit some of these on uh, newgrounds.com. And, um, well, they got deleted because everybody hated them because I didn't draw very well. And then I noticed some people were, like, making video games and sort of telling their stories through that. And then I started trying that and realized I'm actually a lot better at writing code and figuring out these systems than I am at uh, drawing or necessarily writing prose. So that's sort of how I got into that. Do you still feel like you're telling stories, though? So in some ways, I still aspire to to work in, in games to tell these stories. But what sort of kept me in graphics programming and why I call this sort of a dream job is because I feel like as I as I work in this this field where what you're essentially trying to do with computer graphics is figure out how to visualize the world around you so I feel like it's a very interesting sort of job where a lot of what you do is you're kind of looking around and sort of thinking looking at the details around you and thinking how do I accurately model or visualize this which which is interesting for me because it makes you really notice details that you wouldn't have otherwise really thought about before so for example like I could be staring at a and this has happened a little bit when I was younger, just kind of staring at a bottle of water and just kind of moving the, moving the bottle, watching how the water moves and how it settles and, and how the waves it makes and, and kind of realizing how there's an incredible amount of complexity there that makes it very difficult to accurately uh, represent on a computer. So in a way, it kind of makes me appreciate the like, nature. So it's, just, it's this weird kind of... Um, it's almost, I almost I, like Deep down, I feel like I'm really like a, a, like a bird watcher, like some kind of nature... Love it where, I just want to like be outside and kind of watch how things are and learn about them. And I feel like I get to do that uh, as a graphics programmer.
0: Part of the reason that I asked to have you on the show was I saw a talk that you gave about visualizing four-dimensional objects at a conference. And I think like you said something like um, you know, if a shadow is a two d representation of a three-dimensional object, then you just have to find the shadow of the four-dimensional object to show it to people. And I started, like, sending mind-blown gifts to my coworkers and then linking to the talk. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what led you to form that conference talk and, like, what, what, was, what were you thinking about that made you um, try to visualize four-dimensional objects for people?
1: Sure. So the reason I initially started that project itself was it was actually a math professor who was teaching... Uh, a class on four-dimensional geometry, and he kind of needed someone to help write a tool for that. My interest in it was kind of the same experience you had, was when I first learned about it, I had this sort of moment of, like, uh, denial, where like, you know, there's no such thing as 4D, what's this guy talking about? And then sort of learning a bit more about how not only could you represent that, but you could sort of attempt to see it. And and sort of these layers of uh, getting mind-blown where I also learned that vision doesn't really... Being able to see in three D doesn't really happen in our eyes as much as it happens in our in our brains, uh, and that was kind of a kind of a mind blowing realization because it meant that if your eyes just see two D images uh, and your brain is the one that puts together that three D representation of your world, then that could mean that you might be able to learn to see in four dimensions by sort of learning to make these associations that we very intuitively make for going from two D to three D, but sort of learning and practicing to go from the sort of 3D shadows to uh, a four-dimensional representation. Let's talk a little bit more about like your day-to-day. So what are your hours like? When do you show up? When do you, when do you leave? So I live in Philadelphia, and the office is now in downtown Philadelphia, which is great for me because my commute is like 10 minutes. Uh, before that, uh, the office was in the suburbs, so my commute was about, uh, it was about two hours each way. So it's kind of terrible, but I would show up, usually show up at like uh, 10 a.m. and kind of leave at 5 p.m. just around the the train schedule. Now I figured I'd get a lot more uh, free time to myself now that we've moved, but I, end up just, uh, I ended up just working those extra four hours, partially because the, a lot of the work is just so enjoyable. So right now I usually will get in around 8 a.m. and we'll leave anywhere between uh, 4 to 6 p.m. What
0: makes it enjoyable?
1: So I think, for me, it is part of that. That At the end of the day, what I'm doing is it's very visual. I can always see the results of that. So, for example, one recent thing that I was very sort of excited to be working on was we got some 3D data sets of the Great Pyramids of Egypt. It's meaningful to me because I grew up in Egypt. I grew up around the pyramids and no one actually has any three D data of the pyramids. If you open up, you know, Google Earth right now and you go to the pyramids, you'll just see like flat satellite images. Part of the reason for that is because there's some government restrictions in some of these areas where like commercial drones aren't allowed to fly. But this company that we're working with managed to get that managed to construct this three D data from um, their proprietary like satellite images. So I was holding like the very first public data set of the great pyramids of Egypt of like places I've been to that no one else has ever seen so that was like a really cool thing to be able to then put on the web and kind of share and show friends and family or even just even just fly around myself yeah I mean there's with the 3d stuff
0: I guess how close is that related to programming for video games do you think is it a similar language that you code in or is it a similar kind of process that you go through
1: it's definitely very similar to programming in video games, and that's in fact part of what um, what I'm excited about about this job is that it would be easy if I wanted to to sort of transition back to making games. So I'm not everything I'm learning is completely applicable. If anything, it's a little more it's a little harder. So you have to do all the things you normally have to do to render to display these 3D scenes, except you have to do it on a sort of virtual globe, which has its own additional challenges. In some ways, it is a little easier because in video games, a lot of people care about you know the frame rate, so everything has to run uh, very smooth, very fast. Otherwise, it looks choppy, and that's not as good. You still sort of have this requirement in this type of mapping work, but it's a little—it's um, not as strict because people will people will forgive a map for being a little choppy here and there as long as they can see their data. The problem—the big problem now is people have no, don't even have a good way of just seeing their data or being able to share it on the web at all. So just. Putting that data on the web and being able to share it in seconds. As so, usually, just to give you an idea of like the kind of scale we're talking about, usually people have like um, data sets that are anywhere between like a gigabyte to like half a terabyte. So imagine like sharing that even between computers or across offices in the same city or anything involves like putting it on a hard drive and physically going to deliver that. And so being able, to, the fact that we have a way of putting it on the web and giving you sort of a web link that'll open that makes that go from you know. If you had to download the whole data set, often it would be like hours to like seconds.
0: So instead, you get the, the data set in pieces somehow that, that match to what they want to see?
1: Exactly. The tiling is what we call it. So tiling 3D data is kind of the, the big thing, the big value that man's.
0: For that kind of work, what are the languages that you program in? Do you have a primary language? Do you code in multiple
1: languages all day? So our sort of visualization engine is in JavaScript because that has to run on the web. Uh, although a lot of our uh, sort of tiling pipeline that takes in this kind of data transforms it and breaks it up is a mix of JavaScript and C++ and sometimes I have to do some sort of data transformations in python so that's uh, so for me it's also kind of cool in that you get to you get to work on sort of a rendering engine on the web in JavaScript learning about all the you know cutting edge web tools but also there's a lot of very um, sort of like the stereotypically fundamental computer science problems of you have like a ton of data you have an algorithm that usually might work fine, but on a very large data set is suddenly it's suddenly not really feasible. And so how do you optimize that? So it's it's kind of almost like a whole spectrum of uh, of engineering, I feel like.
0: Are those the same computer languages that you studied in
1: school? So we had done C in school. Uh, not so much JavaScript to had It had been a little bit um, it hadn't grown as big as it is now at the time. A lot of the web tools were still sort of nascent. So, so a, lot of, a lot of the JavaScript I learned was just kind of my own passion about making interactive things on the web and wanting to share them. And um, so I learned a lot of that from sort of my own uh, work on the side.
3: What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Rules and restrictions may apply.
0: Can you talk a little bit about what you do, like the kind of teamwork structure that you have at work? Do you work in a large team or a small team? And how do you collaborate on what work you're doing?
1: So we're a pretty small team. We're about uh, the whole company is about 12 people. So it's about like maybe six or seven programmers, full-time software developers. And the way season works is actually very interesting because so Cesium, as a startup, it's only been around actually for a couple of months, but as sort of a team, they've been working together for about six or seven years as sort of a team in this big pairing company. And for most of that time, the main, the main project they work on was the Cesium uh, web engine. So, and that was completely open source. And so a lot of the way the team works together is in this, in this very open source centric thing where everything is sort of transparent so actually, I think for, for most of that, for most of those years, uh, they never used anything like Slack or anything like that. And also, I want to mention that when I say they, a lot of it is because I joined the season team about a year and a half ago. So a lot of this was sort of before my time. But it's interesting because everything, so yeah, so every, every, everything they were doing had to sort of be public facing, had to be accessible. Because the idea is you, if you're maintaining an open source project, you want people who are not in your office to be able to follow the conversation, also contribute. So a lot of times, so it also led to a little bit of awkward situations. A lot of times, someone might be right next to you, but you might still want to, like you know, talk to them on online and in public, just so everyone else would be involved. So a lot of it is is the sort of asynchronous, you know, post uh, post issue on GitHub on our GitHub page to sort of. Um, you know, brainstorming ideas or sort of report a problem. And a lot of times, you know, you might need to sort of go to a whiteboard, uh, figure a problem out and usually you'd come back and say, We spoke offline, you know, here's here's the solution, here's the result, or here's, you know, a picture of the whiteboard that we drew. Do you have
0: folks that work remotely too, or do you feel like that's sort of the same thing with the open source stuff?
1: We do have a couple uh, of folks who work uh, remotely, but most of the most of the team is in the same uh, in the same office.
0: Some people picture programmers as like somebody who drinks mountain Dew, wears a hoodie, and only does things at night. Are any of those stereotypes are represented in you or how do you differ?
1: So I feel very conflicted about this question because I really would like not to fit those stereotypes because I think it's sort of uh, in a big way, it's like this gatekeeping at the community and makes it. It makes it something not everyone can participate in. But I will sort of admit that I grew up sort of fantasizing about that stereotype. In fact, there's a kind of a funny story where, you know, part of, you know, you always see in like programmer movies, you know, they'll, you know, grab a, grab a beer and you'll sit down and hack at their computer. And so I, growing up in Egypt, I'm a Muslim, I don't drink. And so I would still get, um, I would buy like non-alcoholic beer and sit down and drink that and sort of um, role play this, this feeling of like, yeah, I'm a real programmer, just like those, those movies. So... Yeah, admittedly, I do. I do have this, and in fact, a lot of what I used to do as well was like these hackathons or, or game jams, uh, where you'd like create something over a weekend. So it'd be you know coding away late at night, and it is something I've, I've I've enjoyed a lot in the past. But I also now recognize that yeah, you don't have to be you don't have to be sort of this this passion to do this as a as a career. And in fact, going back to my own origins, like I didn't even start programming because I love programming. I ended up really loving it, but the a lot of people might want to program just for as a means to an end to sort of get something done whether that's a website or an application or a game or a story they're trying to tell an interactive story in some way so that's something i'm really i'm really passionate about i I want people to know that you know you you don't have to sort of enjoy programming as a hobby as as well as a career to to really do it successfully
0: in that vein do you see code as a tool that you use and then some other people would use it as a mean like as a a passion.
1: So I think for me now it has become the sort of passion where sometimes like the just the the act of creating something, of sitting down, writing it on code, thinking about it, and getting something that works is fun in itself, even if the result I'm creating isn't that isn't even that interesting. But I do think so. that that's what it is for me.
0: For those listening that have never written even an Excel formula, do you think there's anything about programming that they should understand that, that a lot of people don't.
1: Yeah, I think if I had to pick one thing is that, um, actually, yeah, th- this is the thing I want everyone to understand. It's that uh, computers are not as smart as you think they are. In fact, I, th- I think one of my favorite things about that I learned in college was that uh, computers can really only do three things. You, know, you can really only do arithmetic, so you can add things, subtract things. You can uh, store things in memory and retrieve them. And then the last thing is do sort of logical comparisons, check if something, a value is equal to another value or is greater than or not. So knowing that uh, should give you an idea of just sort of how primitive these machines are, is that you know they, they can really only do these very basic things. On the other hand, the fact that they can do so much now is kind of a, a testament of how the engineering, all these layers upon layers of tooling that make it easy, each time make it easy for the next sort of set of programmers, the next generation to build more and more sophisticated things. A lot of technology feels like black magic, um, especially with a lot of artificial intelligence. People are either like very excited about it or afraid of it, uh, and I think we sort of think it can do more than it really can. And that's something I, I'm actually very passionate about, and that's why, um, so I mentioned, I'm, I'm sort of, I, I started out sort of an aspiring writer, and, and that's something I've also been doing kind of on the side, where I, I like to... Take everyday technology things that we interact with and sort of explain them. So one recent thing I did uh, was uh, write an article about how the JPEG format works. So everyone everyone uses images on there in their day to day life and, and using computers. Whether you're taking pictures of your phone, sending them, putting them uh, online, um, and sort of understanding uh, what goes into the uh, the creation of uh, image format like that. And it, it's actually a lot of very fascinating engineering work just to get you know the, those cat images you see, something worth worth learning about.
0: Yeah, I mean, so these formats like JPEG and ping and the, the GIF that everyone uses all day to display their emotions to each other are based on these libraries that, how long have they been around?
1: So that's actually very interesting is that the, the JPEG format has changed a lot and has evolved and has added a lot of features, but where most of what the JPEG images you see are still the same format that I think was created like around the 1980s, I think. So yeah, been around for uh, a very long time. A lot of those libraries are open source as well.
0: So having been programming for, how many years have you been writing code? So
1: I guess it would be about 12, 13 years now.
0: Which is a significant amount of time, given that JavaScript has gone from being used by very few to almost everyone I've talked to. Do you feel like even in those 12 years, you've adopted sort of a... You know, people don't appreciate the stuff that was built before them that they're building on top of thing, and that's why you want to explain it? Or is it, um, I guess, like, where does that, that feeling that you have to explain it come from?
1: So I think I've, I've personally definitely uh, had this uh, sort of taking it for granted. I, th- I think you kind of have to, to be able to sort of do your job. In fact, I was just thinking the other day about how uh, a lot of our debugging tools for creating like web applications have changed significantly. And now, uh, now I'm really curious, like how did, I, how did anyone ever get anything done just five years ago before any of these tools had matured? But really, I think my, my sort of motivation for wanting to explain a lot of these things is when talking to people who don't sort of have a career in, in software where they there's a lot of, I guess, either misinformation or sort of um, fear of technology or, or like I said, sort of attributing um, things um, it can't really do or, or having these sort of expectations for it. So I feel like, I guess I feel like I, I want everyone to sort of get a chance to sort of see the the, the beauty that we have here, sort of the the, the, these great architectural uh, achievements of our time, because I think there's a lot of there's a lot of beauty and hidden complexity around us um, that we don't really appreciate, and then that's almost in a way, in some way, the same reasons I, I like graphics programming a lot, but but for for sort of for an, in a very different angle, and that for me it's 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 not even learning about. Code or technology at all? It's it's learning about like the world, like physics and, and light and perception and vision and uh, how how sort of uh, the the world as uh, creation around us works. Okay, for the lightning round, tabs or spaces? Tabs, definitely. Emoji
0: in code, good idea or bad idea?
1: I now am a convert, so I think they are a good idea.
0: What is your favorite programming language to code in? JavaScript. Eighty character column widths, good or bad?
1: Uh. I'm not actually sure what, what you're talking about.
0: It's basically like, when does the soft return start? At oh, 80 characters wide or 120 characters wide?
1: I think wider is better.
0: All right. Favorite code editor? Sublime. Deploying code on Fridays, bad idea or worst idea? I would do it again. Wow. Do you have an opinion on the caps lock key? And if so, what is it?
1: I've never really considered. Uh, I, have no, I have no strong feelings about the caps lock key now.
0: When was the last time you updated your personal website?
1: A few days ago, actually, to add my BangBangCon talk.
0: Congratulations. That's awesome. Most Thank people you. have never done that after like, the first publishing. <laughs> I, um, I've
1: redone my, my personal website almost like every year as sort of a who am I tradition. And, and I, I like the latest iteration a lot, and I've been trying to sort of keep it up.
0: Cool, and yeah, we'll link to that uh, that talk from Bang Bang Con in the in the show notes, um, so everybody else can have their minds blown out the back of their heads yes. about four D. Thanks so much, Omar, for coming in. I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of Working. Once again, I'm your host, Greg LaValle. If you like the show, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have questions or thoughts. You can email us at working at slate.com. Working is produced by Jessamyn Molly. Special thanks to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. All three of these episodes of Coders are in your feed now. So if you like this episode, go listen to the other two.